And my chief of staff grabs me and says, you know, come out. Um, you know, the attorney general's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. And the attorney general says, Pete, I'm, I'm going to concede the race to you. And I'm like, are you sure? It's, I'm only up by about 1,500 votes. And my chief, or my campaign manager's like, what are you doing? <laughs> He's conceding. Take his concession. <laughs> From Grindstone, this is Nebraska Made a narrative journey through the lives of Nebraska's most inspiring business leaders. We unpack the intimate details of how our guests navigated obstacles and built their companies in pursuit of the good life. I'm JT Martin, and today we are from Nebraska's 40th governor, Governor Pete Ricketts. Being a politician is a tough job. You have to pick sides on issues. You're always in the public eye. You can't always make everyone happy. It takes a lifetime of putting yourself out there and hard work before people will actually trust you enough to lead. Well, our special guest today, Governor Pete Ricketts, knows all about hard work as his father, Joe Ricketts, came up from humble beginnings to start something called a self-directed brokerage that would eventually become TD Ameritrade. That's right, the same TD Ameritrade that was acquired by Charles Schwab in 2019 for $26 billion. But before all of the politics and fanfare, the Ricketts were just your typical Omaha family. Well, I was born at St. Mary's Hospital in Nebraska City, Nebraska, about a block from my grandmother's house. I was the oldest, so kind of the rule follower, the person who was in charge when mom and dad are gone, kind of much to the chagrin of my siblings. What was it like growing up with your dad as a businessman? Did you meet maybe even Warren Buffett growing up? Was that sort of the, the type of circle that you ran in at that point? No. Uh, when dad started the company and he had a few other partners, it was very much a startup operation back in 1975. I mean, he was profitable from his first month, but was never making a ton of money as things were going on. And so no, rather we, we, just the opposite of like hanging out with Warren Buffett, it was very much just watching my dad work really, really hard. So he would come home at night and we'd eat dinner as a family and then he'd take all the, you know all his kids and my mom would go down and he'd open up accounts all night long like in the evening and as kids we just he always liked there was a brokerage room so lots of scratch paper around so we just doodle or you know play on the computers a little bit i mean they were dumb terminals you couldn't do anything with them but just pretend we were at a real computer it seemed high tech at the time and then my mom was staying home with his kids but then my dad needed somebody at the office that he could trust to help run the business and so my mom came in to work and then we became latchkey kids so which we actually kind of liked we actually liked not having mom and dad around you know we were responsible for making sure dishes got done and that was kind of my job i was kind of the you know the person saying okay everybody we're gonna wash dishes we didn't have a dishwasher so we had to wash them by hand uh, and then my brother tom was primarily responsible for making dinner at night which was usually something simple like a pot roast or something like that you know throw the roast and some salt and pepper in a pot with some water and you put it turn the oven on and you know, it was ready by the time mom and dad got home. Do you remember a time when you realized that your dad was starting to be successful and people were starting to notice, hey, this is a, you know, a really profitable enterprise and things are going really well? Yeah. In high school, uh, that's when some people started to know that Ameritrade, uh, back then it was called First National Brokerage Services, was doing well and was was hiring people. But it was, it was kind of funny because... Um, 
people had a, you know, a kind of an outstretched opinion of what it was like, I think, because some people said, oh, your dad, you know, he's, he's really rich. Got to be one of the richest people in town. I'm like, mm, I think that's Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not us. Yeah. Have you seen our houses? Like, yeah. like we, we literally had an oven that I don't know how long this lasted, but it was like years. The oven door was broken. And, you know, again, when you start your own company, you are pouring every penny back into the company. You're not able to take a lot out. And so our oven door for a long time was propped open or propped closed by a chair because there just wasn't any money. Like that was not a priority to fix the oven, the oven door at least. The oven itself worked, but the oven door didn't. And same thing, like I mentioned, you know, we didn't have a dishwasher at home. The kids were the dishwashers. So uh, I, I, it was probably high school when the dishwasher finally got fixed and we didn't have to wash dishes by hand anymore. <laughs> so uh, that's probably when there was, an, I, I suppose that was when, the company was doing well enough that dad didn't have to pour every cent back into the company to keep it going. Yeah, yeah. Probably easier to cook those pot roasts without having to put the chair up against the, <laughs> the oven anymore. I like that. I like that. So Pete goes to the University of Chicago to study biology and originally wanted to become a researcher. He admits that he studied biology to avoid having to write papers, but he eventually caves and goes on to get his MBA and works for an environmental consulting firm out of college. But then, around the age of 30, in 1994, the good life started calling him back. So you went, you studied biology in college. Do you want to join the family business? Did you know what you wanted to do immediately afterwards? Well, my dad was really great about it. My dad said when we were graduating uh, high school, hey, Pete, I would love to have you come back and work with the family business. But I also remember my dad wanted me to come back and work at, in the family business. And my grandfather was a carpenter. And my grandpa fired my dad because he ruined every piece of wood he touched. So my dad's like, well, I, I wasn't cut out to be a carpenter. So if you're not cut out to come back in the brokerage business, I totally understand. And when I left for college, I had no intention of coming back and working for the family business. And then when I got to Chicago, I, you know, I love Chicago. It's a, it's a great city. My dad also had a rule, you couldn't come back and work for the family business until you were 30, because he wanted you to go out and have your own experience. So it was, uh, you know, like, and he said, whatever salary you're making, when you come back to work for the family business, that's what I'm going to pay you. So if you are getting the salary of a receptionist, that's what you're gonna make. If you're a vice president, that's the salary you're gonna make. And that's the position you will take in the company. So there was also incentive to not come back until you'd established a business career. And dad really wanted us all to, go out and bring, not only develop our own skills to bring back to the company, but understand that we could be independent without the company, that we didn't need the company to have a job. It's a double-edged sword because we all, all the kids went away. We all lived in Chicago for a period of time, but I'm the only one to move back to Nebraska on a permanent basis. All my siblings, they, till this day, still live in Chicago. Now, some of them came back and worked for the family business, but ultimately they all ended up in Chicago. So it was kind of thing that once you reach 30, oftentimes you've also gotten married and settled down and had kids. And so it's awfully hard to pull you out of that life to get you moved back to Nebraska. I was still single when I moved back. And so I decided, you know, I'd seen how other companies had run. Uh, for the family business, at least I'd have a little bit better insight in how decisions were made because I saw a lot of poor decision making in companies. And so I thought, well, at least I'll have more of an inside view of how some of these decisions are being made. You know, we talk a lot about the Nebraska boomerang on this show. Do you remember anything like really specific about the moment that you knew that you wanted to return to Nebraska? Was it the, you know, the Runza that brought you back? Well, to be quite frank, JT, 
at that point, I really didn't want to come back. <laughs> That's understandable too. But because I was having a lot of fun in Chicago, but I also wanted to get a job that was going to be meaningful for me. And I didn't see that in Chicago. And so I came back and I got to tell you, it was like, except for marrying my wife, which you can argue wasn't even my decision. Um, it was a best decision I ever made, come back to Nebraska. I love Nebraska. And again, it's one of the things that I, I certainly found growing up here, you take it for granted, you know, that, you know, there's people talk about how nice we are to each other. I mean, people are just, they're just nicer here. That's one of the things about Nebraska that I love is that people actually take care of each other here. And it, again, it's hard to quantify that, but it's real. It's, it's absolutely real here and it's not everywhere. And you can look at, if you want to see the quantifiable aspects of that, you can go look at just the philanthropy in Omaha and look at all the things that the, the folks who had done well in business have donated back to the city that have really added to the quality of life in Omaha. The zoo, I mean, the zoo is a great example. Like almost no public dollars go to the zoo and we got one of the best in the world. And that's another kind of hallmark of being a Nebraskan that we give back to other people and give back to the community. Kind of like you coming on this show, you know, you're giving back to what we're trying to do here in the studio. It's kind of kind of cool that people help each other here a lot. Yeah, absolutely. You just and a lot of it is sometimes you just have to ask. Hey, Nebraskans, have you ever considered starting a podcast for your business? Well, here are the top three reasons that you should. Number one, become an authority figure. Podcasting shows that you've put in the time to do your research and that you want to share it with the world. It gives you a platform. Number two. Create a strong company culture and identity. Podcasts are a window into what you're up to and the people behind the scenes. And number three, they're easy to create. Producing a podcast with Grindstone is as easy as showing up and just talking. Grindstone takes out all the dirty work of production and distribution and gives you more time to create. Go to grindstoneagency.com to learn more about getting started in podcasting. One of the things coming into the company as the boss's son, I knew everybody looked at me as the boss's son. So what I always felt like I had to work twice as hard as everybody else to let them know that I didn't get the job just because I was the boss's son, that I was willing to work hard. So my dad is not always real long on details. And I show up to work first day and he's like, oh, good, Peter, glad you're here. So walks me down to Mary Faye, who's the vice president of the retail services at the time. That was called AccuTrade. And he walks into the office with me and says, Mary, this is my son. Find him a job. <laughs> like, he had not told her anything. Her face just dropped. She's like, what? <laughs> and she doesn't know your background or anything. No, nothing about me. Just... I mean, she knew I existed. She knew that my dad had kids. But apparently my dad hadn't bothered to tell her that I was coming or when I was coming. So she stuck me on the phones in customer service, which, by the way, was great because I went through the program like everybody else. You know, I, I got the experience of our customer service reps. I actually, there's a number of different um, registrations you have to get. They're kind of like certifications almost. Your Series 7, your Series 63, you know, so forth. There was a bunch of them. And so I studied for the first six months I worked at Ameritrade. I studied basically, um, you know, all through that solid just to get, you know, knock them out, get all of those things done. So that's kind of what I early on started off with. And then as I developed that, there were, my dad progressively gave me more responsibility. Like I got a chance to do a lot of different things. I got to run um, our marketing department for a while and product development and operations and ultimately became the, the president and chief operating officer of our retail branch. So Pete climbs the ladder at Ameritrade. He's competent, he's hardworking, 
and it's during this time that he meets his wife, Suzanne Shore, and they get married in 1997. Things are going well for Pete, and opportunities start to come his way that would lead him towards politics. So to set the scene, this is during the first Bush administration, and President Bush is looking to do social security reform because the current program isn't exactly financially solvent. Well, Bush is trying to get the vote of Nebraska's Democratic Senator at the time, Ben Nelson. So his administration was looking for places in Nebraska that had young people who would get their message and a financial services business like Ameritrade was the perfect spot to find people like that. So Senator Chuck Hagel and Bush senior advisor Carl Rove come to visit Nebraska to speak with Pete and his team. And eventually they end up asking Pete if he would consider running for Senate. Pete was shocked. He'd never really thought about it, and he had a good thing going as the COO of Ameritrade, so he initially passes on the offer. But then, after Ameritrade acquired TD Waterhouse in January of 2006, there was just enough restructuring within the business that could justify the COO leaving without alarming shareholders, so he saw the chance to take a risk and do something crazy, run against an extremely popular incumbent senator, Ben Nelson. That's when I decided to, to make that run for U.S. Senate, and I had no idea what I was doing. Like, didn't know what I didn't know kind of thing. And got through the primary, and then, which in a Republican primary, everybody was relatively nice to each other as we went through that. And then you got in the general election, and it's a whole different world, especially, you know, federal politics are, like, it is a blood sport. So got smacked around a lot. It was it was a great learning experience. Got my tail handed to me in the election against Ben Nelson. Didn't know that it's really like I didn't think this through that, oh yeah, taking on a really popular incumbent senator, that's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> like nobody had any interest in in uh, getting rid of him. So I shouldn't say nobody. I got 36% of the vote. <laughs> that's, that's not something like that. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, like I said, I got my tail handed to me in that, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I love campaigning around the state. I love meeting people and really got bit by the political bug. And so after that election, I, I stayed involved behind the scenes, you know, as a chief operating officer in Ameritrade, it's not the kind of job they hold open for you, right, for 14 months or whatever. So uh, I got involved behind the scene and helped create a free market think tank and a watchdog group and became the national committee man for the Republican Party from the state of Nebraska. So stayed involved behind the scenes, and uh, that's how I got involved in politics. Do you remember when you went from business to politics? Was there anything that struck you as particularly odd? Did you have to buy all new suits? Did you have to change the way you talked? Or was there anything in that you know stretch of a year that was just like, wow, this is a whole different world? Well, I will tell you one thing. I worked hard at Ameritrade. It's another order of magnitude more work to run for politics, to, to run a political campaign that I had no appreciation for. So again, to all your podcast viewers out there, you should respect anybody who runs because you may not agree with their politics. Uh, you may really cringe at what they say, but I will tell you, they worked hard to get there. And it is, it is the kind of thing where you're working nights and weekends. I mean, they're long days, like I said, at Ameritrade, I worked hard. It was nothing compared to how much you had to work once you got into politics. Do you remember the moment that you found out that the vote didn't go your way? Did you go home and console yourself over a, you know, a <laughs> glass of scotch or what did you do? So 
it's not, it wasn't a surprise, right? I mean, like, look, we're doing polling all along. And yes, you can maybe say, well, maybe the polling's not quite right. But when you're losing as bad as I was losing, it really was not a surprise. My dad was shocked. My dad thought I was going to win for sure. But I was like, mm, yeah, that's not a surprise. Obviously, I was very disappointed. But I got to tell you, one of the things that happened right afterwards, and I, I frankly feel blessed that I didn't win um, because I would have had to move to D.C. My wife and I were talking about how that would work with the kids because we didn't want to move the family out of Nebraska. We lived here for a reason. We wanted our kids raised here. So I was going to fly back and forth. And so I'd be gone a lot. And the kids knew that. My, you know, my twins were seven at the time. My, my daughter, Eleanor, was five. And my daughter, Margo, who was seven, came up to me and said, Daddy, I know you're sad that you didn't win, but I'm glad you're not leaving. And when your daughter says that, it's pretty much, you can't feel bad at that point, right? You know, it's like, okay, well, thank you. I mean, it really did make me feel like, it really was a great consolation. And, and the other thing I, I learned too is that the sun came up the next morning. My friends who were my friends before, they were still my friends. My family was still there for me. The world didn't end because I didn't win an election. And that's true with a lot of things in life. So Pete ends up in a bit of a limbo. He lost the race, but he couldn't go back to TD because they had given away his job. So he started an investment firm called Draken LLC to invest in other entrepreneurs like his father. He learned a lot about business through this, and he met new people all over the state, all while doing politics on the side. And now that he'd been an executive at Ameritrade and ran an investment firm that helped startups grow, he had a unique business perspective that a lot of politicians simply don't have. And it came in handy when he decided to run again for office in 2014. But this time, he would find himself slugging it out in a very tight governor primary election. When I was looking at this race, originally I was going to be backing a friend of mine, Mike Flood. And then in December, his wife developed breast cancer. And so, because Mike is a stand-up guy, he dropped out of the race to take care of his family. Now, good news, his wife has recovered. She's fine. You know, they got two boys are growing up. Everything's good. So, but I had committed to Mike. And then uh, 4th of July, 2013, Mike called me that weekend and said, hey, Pete, I am for sure not getting back in this race. Because I had been thinking about running for either Senate or governor. My wife was like, why are you thinking about running for Senate? You're an executive. You should be running for governor. And like all good husbands, I said, well, yes, dear, you're right. <laughs> so when Mike said for sure he was not going to get back in the race, that's when I put the wheels in motion to start running for governor. So we put together the team. Oh, we ran a tough race. It was pretty, like I said, it was a pretty close race all the way through it. But we had a very good strategy, how we're going to leverage technology to be able to be really smart about our buys for television. And by leveraging that kind of some unique technology to be able to help us do those buys in ways that were very targeted at our audience. And also kind of below the radar, we were able to sneak up on the front runner, who is the attorney general, and get ahead of him. And it was really, they didn't see it coming until it was very close to the primary. And that's one of the things that, that helped us win was that we were able to build momentum in a way that they didn't see coming. And then we were able to, to win the race by about 2,300 votes or about 1% of all the votes being cast. So I got 26% of the votes and um, the Attorney General got you know, 25% of the votes. It was a very, very close race. In fact, I remember election night, we were in the Cornhusker Hotel in the basement, so there's no cell coverage. And my chief of staff grabs me and says, you know, come out. Um, you know, the Attorney General's on the phone, he wants to talk to you. 
So I go outside, it's like 11 o'clock at night or something like that. And uh, we're outside so I can get cell phone coverage. And the attorney says, says Pete, I'm, I'm gonna concede the race to you. And I'm like, are you sure? It's, I'm only up by about 1,500 votes. And my chief, or my campaign manager's like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> He's conceding, take his concession. <laughs> but the other day, right, it actually matters how, it doesn't matter he concedes. I mean, it's not how many votes you actually get it. So yeah. it's, concessions are more ceremonial than anything else. Okay. But uh, anyway, so that was uh, winning the primary uh, that night. And that was, yeah, it was a ton of fun. And, you know, I had I had been through the Senate race and, and maybe come kind of zen about how all these things work. And look, when you're doing your election night party, a lot of candidates will be in the, what they call the war room, waiting for the final results. Um, because if they lose, they don't necessarily want to see like the, you know, everybody see the disappointment on your face, whatever. And I'm like, you know, this is, a, this is essentially a big party of people that I know and like that I've invited to this thing. It's almost like my wedding reception. So I want to be out there with them. And if I lose, I lose, you know, again, kind of what I learned from my Senate race, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. My family's still going to be my family. My friends are still going to be my friends. So I don't have a problem being out there if, even if we do lose. And ultimately, you know, we did end up winning. So it had a happy ending for me. But uh, it w what was great was um, having my family there. Uh, there's a great picture on the journal, front page of the Journal Star of me hugging, hugging my son, Roscoe. So that Eleanor actually had gone to bed. She didn't get back up for the <laughs> actual official announcement. But Roscoe and Margaret were there. And uh, so it was, you know, it was just great sharing with them. And then I had been saving a really nice bottle of scotch. Because you mentioned scotch earlier. How I did I know? A 40-year-old bottle of Lafroy that was just amazing. Like, you know, the, the barley was grown in 1960. So we opened that up and everybody got like, we had, you know, so this is like the after party to the election night party. There's still a lot of people there and we all got these cheap plastic hotel cups and everybody's getting like this much poured into it. <laughs> <laughs> like if they knew how much per ounce that cost. Right, them, right. Like, I'm like, yeah. hey, if you're not going to drink that, will you pour yeah. it back in my glass? Because yeah. that's really expensive scotch. So after the closest Republican gubernatorial primary since 1922, Pete Ricketts ends up the 40th governor of Nebraska, defeating Democratic candidate and former regent of the University of Nebraska, Chuck Hassebrook, receiving 57.6% of the vote to Hassebrook's 38.9%. But now the hard part starts. In 2014, Nebraska's economy was strong in some sectors, but was trailing most of the country in innovation. So Governor Ricketts puts his team to work and the result was an impressive first term where he won back-to-back-to-back -back -back Governor's Cups, an award for the state with the most economic development projects per capita. Now the hard part starts, you know? You, you had no clue that a, that a global pandemic was coming up. No, we didn't. First, you had your, your, whole, your whole first term. <laughs> but, but you had some real wins in that first term. I mean, you know, you won the Governor's Cup for, you know, the most economic uh, programs per, per capita. Yeah, three for, years in a row. Yeah, 2016, 17, and oh no, it was 16, 17, 18. Yeah, 16, 17, 18. And then we had the floods in 19, and then we had the pandemic in 20. So we dropped to number three in 19 and number four in 20. So we went, we're hoping now that we're getting back out of the pandemic here. We're seeing the end in sight. We're going to gear things up to start growing the state again. Because ultimately, I mean, you know, the cup itself is just a piece of hardware, right? It doesn't, by itself, it doesn't mean anything. But what it represents is the opportunity for Nebraska families to find that job that is gonna allow them to take care of their families. So they can send their kids to school, go on a family vacation, buy a house, 
live the good life here in Nebraska. That's what it represents because those are companies that are investing and creating jobs all across our state. And so that's why I focus our Department of Economic Development on that because that's what this is, that's what government's supposed to be. It's about supposed to be about creating opportunities for people to enjoy the greatest nation that we have on the face of the earth, the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, it, it seems like we've really done that. Just the amount of, you know, venture deals that we had back in 2012 versus now, you know, we've just come such a long way in kind of bridging that gap. And now we, we are really kind of in the middle of the pack here for states that are developing economically. Yeah, certainly when it comes to venture capital and startups, we had to develop an ecosystem and it's still a work in progress to be able to help those startup companies. And we've got, of course, we've got a lot of great startup companies here in our our state right now. And you see them becoming more uh, high profile like Huddle, for example, here in Lincoln. So we're seeing that getting better. But I think there's also just broadly speaking, I mean, first of all, the strength of our state has always been our people. Nebraskans are awesome. We got a great work ethic. We get well-educated. We got a great school system. People are hardworking, they, they will go out of their way, they're customer service oriented, they're loyal. I mean, we, you couldn't ask for better people as if you want, whatever organization you want. And I think there's a recognition that more and more that this is a great place to be able to have your company be located to help it you know, grow and succeed because of the people you hire here. And I think that with the pandemic, that's only gonna get exaggerated. Many of his supporters credit Governor Ricketts for Nebraska's strong economy throughout the 2020 crisis and recession, as Nebraska's unemployment rates are now even lower than pre-pandemic levels at 2.8%. When asked if he'll run against Biden in 2024 for the presidential election, Governor Ricketts says he's focused on being the best governor he can be, and he'll worry about anything after that when we get to that point. I'm JT Martin, and this has been a Grindstone production. Grindstone is one of the premier production and marketing firms here in Lincoln, offering everything you need to grow your business from video and podcast production to social media management and media buying. You can learn more by visiting grindstoneagency.com. And, and actually, again, some of the great things to do in Omaha, Jazz on the Green. So I took my our first official date without my cousin. We went to Jazz on the Green. I brought a bottle of red, a bottle of white, you know, because I didn't know what she liked. And, <laughs> Some snacks, you know, all this. And it was just like, you know, again, this is the kind of stuff you get to do in Omaha because yeah. it's such a cool place to grow up. Yeah, and that's still happening today. Jazz on the Green, right? Yeah, Jazz on the Green still goes on. Okay, okay. Note, note to all you single listeners out yeah. there. Take some Work for jazz me. Jazz on the Green. <laughs> <laughs>